I made a list of my three favorite databases. I won't tell you what they are until you've told me what are your three favorite databases. Oh, three favorite ones. That's actually a little bit challenging. I think it's fair to say Postgres gets to be number one. Mm-hmm. And it's not that I super, super enjoy working with Postgres necessarily, but it has been very, very reliable. It works very well. Um, it doesn't do weird stuff to my data. And like it covers so many use cases. It covers essentially everything I've ever needed from a database. Not entirely true. That's a slight exaggeration. But it's like favorite sort of implies that you that you super enjoy it. And nah. like, it, it just implies that you enjoy it a bit more than the alternatives. Yeah. So I could I could have asked I you what databases do you hate, but I think that sets a very bad tone. So yeah. <laughs> I wonder I think I'd slide SQLite in as number two, which means I have two SQL databases up there. Of course. But I I really so I think I have sort of fonder uh, feelings about SQLite just due to it being such a weirdo compact little super database uh you can you could run it by hand uh just using a single sort of binary and a file on your drive and like if you wanted to keep your list of movies and you could just hand do everything that in sqlite and it would be a neat little little setup yeah sqlite is like the best binary format for transferring stuff it it's very very neat yeah binary file format i should say it's not a very good wire format yeah but for for a lot of type sort of work stuff postgres just feels more more well known uh, like a well known quantity to work with and when you need to scale across uh, multiple machines and have a shared database that sort of thing that's the kind of setup is typically typically very typical and very common and that's where I'd I'd use Postgres primarily, and SQLite has some some challenges that I'm really curious to explore how you can work around, such as effectively replicating or backing it up. And that's there's a project called Lightstream that can do that. Just shove uh, your data as it's being written to uh, an S3 bucket or similar. So it's like a write-ahead log uh, bolted onto SQLite? So SQLite has a write-ahead log. Okay. And uh, Lightstream hooks into that via the SQLite APIs. Got it. So it just sort of interjects itself and like, okay, yeah, I'll be I'll be passing these on. Thank you. Yep. Um, and then, oh, number three is, is tricky. It's super tricky. I have cheated on number three, so so you can say anything. Yeah, I was sort of considering, like a few years back, I would probably have said Elasticsearch, just because it's an extremely powerful way of doing search. Yep. Now I'm not even sure I want to use Elasticsearch, because it's a pain in the neck. Operationally, it's hell. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. Elastic is, is a um, absolute operational nightmare, uh, which is why there are consultants for that, I suppose. Uh, do you use Postgres for for the free text search? So if I need to do free text search, yeah, Postgres would solve that. And I mean, it has it has a lot of good search-related features. There are things that Postgres would not solve as gracefully as Elasticsearch. So Elasticsearch definitely has a niche where it's where it's effective uh, in in sort of the combination of search and filtering at the same time, and the way it can do filtering in a lot of different ways and sort of hand you back the is it the cardinality of so if you want to do a drill down search and continuously show how many items are you still filtering on Elasticsearch is really good with that cool and then like for a long time I was using Elasticsearch for analytics as well or that kind of sort of if I needed to mangle some statistics where for certain types of that um, or certain types of very normalized schemas, uh, sort of SQL can be very, very cumbersome. Yep. And Elasticsearch can be decent at that, but it's also usually very, very heavy when doing that. Yep. And more recently, I've been introduced to, to sort of column stores, which is the <laughs> the reverse of uh, of the most relational databases that are row based. Yep. The transform. And those are really well suited to this problem, and I haven't explored those. Huh, interesting. Yeah, is the the um, data um, lake thing when you do all kinds of uh, aggregations and analysis and stuff like that, right? Yeah, and if you look at, for example, Plausible Analytics, which is a, an open source analytics platform that's also a software as a service yep. uh, built in Elixir, so that's why I know about it. It's sort of privacy first, so it's a it's a nice project to follow. Sweet. They use something called ClickHouse for okay. for their um, for their analytics, and that's that's like a fairly tightly scoped database that does that does column store the column store thing. Interesting. Apparently, there's also I heard a I heard an interview on the Changelog recently with the creator of SQLite, and he mentioned DuckDB, which is, it's a column store that I think reuses the SQLite client huh. and uh, a bunch of stuff from SQLite, but it presents a column store underneath, so it would be suitable for cool. for analytics and big-ish data. Yep. And he was like, hmm, yeah, that's something I'm considering whether we should fold into SQLite. Yeah. Or implement in SQLite. I don't yep. think he would grab anyone else's code. That's not how he rolls. <laughs> no, he would rewrite it, uh, which is good. Yeah. Um, because then it becomes his code. Another candidate for my sort of, this is a database I've never tried, but I like it uh, yep. conceptually, uh, is CockroachDB. Yeah, it's cool, isn't it? Yeah, it's super interesting because it tackles... <clears throat> so Postgres was built in a world where you... <laughs> You didn't really have multiple computers at, at in the beginning. And then they also uh, sort of introduced replication. Mm -hmm. But it's 
it really is more suited to to having a single sort of authoritative server. That's the easiest way to run it, least complexity. Yeah, and then you have a and then you have a hot standby and if things if your data set becomes too big or you can't scale vertically anymore, you can shard stuff or just add read uh, computers, read servers. Yeah, read replicas. Yeah. And any of those, like both hot standbys and read replicas, already introduce significant operational challenges. Yep. Because suddenly your, uh, your log shipping can get backed up and then things start to fall down. Yep. While CockroachDB was built for cloud native, which just means that it's it's already supposed to be distributed. And it does a lot of sort of consensus algorithm stuff, raft, cool. I think, yep. to, to find uh, consensus for committing things and for... For all of that, which like if if you want to s- scale Postgres across the globe, you're going to have some incredible ha- headaches, apparently. Yep. From from what I've read, I haven't tried it. While Cockroach, we it won't be sort of a walk in the park, but it has the feature set to do that gracefully, from what I understand. <clears throat> There's a bunch of stuff with sort of keeping clocks sufficiently synced and stuff do you mean real clocks time clocks uh, uh, real enough i think you just need to have good enough uh too big a timing difference will make create issues okay i believe that's the case in cockroach and i believe that's the case in sort of google's spanner yeah spanner is the other one that's really cool yeah but spanner isn't open right i don't think so they have written a couple of research papers on it though uh, yeah, so... but cockroach is essentially the same, solving the same problem. So cool. the third spot is still so, sort of open. I mean, I guess Redis might fit in there because Redis I've used plenty and I like Redis. I don't typically use Redis, but it's it's a good, nice, uh, competent, but not overly scoped tool. Yeah, I think Redis is always the tool that I think could be used for more regardless of what it's used for because <laughs> they have all these nice data types and there's language to interact with those data types and all that and people are mainly using it as a key value store yeah it's popular as a queue it's good for keeping counters yeah as a cache it has hashes yeah yeah i've used it for a few different things uh, particularly caching with hashing <laughs> like, yep uh, there just, you go some more nuanced caching, but that's a key value store in a slightly larger key value store. That's <laughs> like, yeah, nested key value stores. Oh, good stuff. So, what are yours? My list first, Postgres. Uh, it's the safe bet, uh, it can do almost anything, it scales amazingly vertically, mm. <laughs> and then you have a problem. Um, so I suppose. 99 per, for 99% of the use cases, Postgres is amazing. And second place, SQLite, uh, for the same reasons you said. Also, it's something very cute about SQLite, uh, and that it is so embeddable, so good. 
Uh, and so much of the horrible low-level code can be put into SQL instead. And SQL is... It's a very verbose, but it's a very nice domain-specific language, I think. And third place, I was going to say, or on my list, it's ETS. Because why not? Oh, the Erlang term storage. Yes, another key value storage. Uh, but Or is it? <laughs> you've nuanced the question so <laughs> yeah that's a good point um so now i really don't know uh, <laughs> uh there are many good contenders out there and but i do have a sweet spot for i wonder if there's a, a weak spot is the name uh for sql and sql databases yeah they are nice. They are quite good at solving the problem space they are operating in. And also solving for for things they aren't good at. Hmm. That's Yeah, when I was when I was on uh, the Elixir Mix podcast uh, yep. hosting Sasha Urich. Yep. The Erlangelist. One of the things he touched on was that he would really like to have um, a SQL database in Erlang or Elixir. Okay. Embedded SQL implementation, ideally supporting, uh, ideally supporting distribution via the the Erlang distribution setup. Yeah. And that's that's a really interesting one. SQLite can handle much of that use case now now elixir has an up-to-date sql implementation with a sqlite implementation which is nice yeah but um, you mentioned amnesia and yeah that's like yeah but amnesia has some problems for yeah, it does. for many many uh for many common use cases it will it will be more challenging from from what i've understood i haven't used it particularly but it, it definitely has some sharp edges yep. for resolving sort of conflicts and recovery from network partitions. Yeah. Because it was built for an environment where network partitions were very unlikely. Because Amnesia should be run on the same machine as all other Amnesias, right? I think the idea was that it was essentially two computers that were essentially soldered together or yeah like physically connected uh in the same environment exactly so that wasn't the problem they were focusing on solving and uh, like recovering so, sort of getting corrupted state in your database is not a commonly acceptable failure mode no it's the worst failure mode crashing is much much better yeah and amnesia will sort of tell you like this is out of sync here's your two two broken parts uh do what you want with it i like that so you can recover but you have to recover an application code and that's not typically what i want so amnesia is sort of out as an easy way forward i think i think sql the sql part is pretty important for me when it comes to having a general purpose database that would sort of drive adoption yeah. If you want 
if you want the general purpose use case and a good compatibility with existing database frameworks like Ecto and Elixir, you want it to be SQL because it's well well understood. And it's a good model. Yeah, <laughs> somewhat well understood yeah. and uh, easy to use. And like in that particular context of trying to bring more things into the beam, you would still want it to play nice with what's typically used out there, which is SQL in, in that particular context, at least. If you want a true sort of em embedded Elixir database, there is a key value store called CubDB. As in BearCub? I guess so. Oh, cool. <laughs> um, it's spelled like it, at least. Yep. And... I think that builds on the ideas from sort of level DB, rocks DB, and I guess those are those based on the Dynamo paper, or is that something else? That's something else. Okay, I think so at least. But but there's a whole this whole series of highly performant uh, key value databases, and that this is sort of an implementation of that concept. And having uh, an easy to embed key value database is cool yep but now i have the possibility of having sqlite instead so i'm more likely to use that yep uh you also got react or Ryak. i don't know how to pronounce that yeah also not a sql database but definitely it's a key value store yeah yeah and like cubdb is a single node uh, kind of right to a file thing yep uh, while react is definitely meant to be distributed if I recall correctly, they built some kind of data store for, if it was the NHS or something with medicine in the UK. Right. It's a huge one and it has sick uptime, uh, pun intended. Uh, so it's a success story. It seems to be, be good stuff. Yeah, I've heard cool things about React, but I don't particularly see... Uh... It's like, I always feel limited uh, by the key value store. Same here. As a as my main database. Because it all ends up with, then you as the application developer have to manage all those indexes. So every, like, for every use case, it's like, okay, let's say I want to store my, uh, uh, me and my friends shoe sizes and uh, coffee preferences in a database. And then I want to look up all friends that have uh, a shoe size of uh, 44 and greater. Yeah. And uh, that's kind of trivial in SQL. It's like select star from friends where shoe size greater than or equal to 44. But yeah. if I want to do that in a key value store, I have to, I could just iterate through all friends, which is for a small number of friends is all right. And because we have the Dunbar number, maybe I don't have that many friends, but let's say I'm Sapu or uh, some some other organization that have a lot of... The NSA has a lot of friends. I might have done some shoe profiling on uh, <laughs> my citizens because I'm a country that's obsessed with shoes. This metaphor got out of hand. It's not a metaphor. This example got out of hand very fast. Uh, I just pushed through. You have it. Anyway, so 
I could either loop through all my friends or the whole database, or I need to make an index uh, where I put the shoe size as a key and then as a value, probably a list of uh, of primary keys. Yeah. And I, I am betting there are some sort of facilities for this in many key value stores where, where it's like, yeah, just say that you want an index and we'll give you an index. And True. There's a very thin line in my book between a key value store and a NoSQL database or a, what's commonly a document store. It's not all... Like, not all NoSQL databases are document stores. Indeed. But many of them are. Is is the term NoSQL useful anymore? Not particularly. I mean, that was mostly a drive for the fact that there were other uh, databases out there and there was a small explosion of them. Yeah. But it's not a useful grouping as in they aren't, they aren't a cohesive bunch. I mean, if you put Elasticsearch... CouchDB, MongoDB, Redis, and um, Neo4j next to one another. They are quite different. Very different. Cassandra wants to be there too, I think. Oh dear. It's a, yeah, it's some kind of distributed thing. Uh, could you say that some of the queues are NoSQL stores too? Or NoSQL databases? Like I mean, you, you can say a lot of things. Yeah, what's, what's the one uh, written in Java? It's a great one. It, uh, architects always want to put it in uh, design regardless of... Are you thinking of Kafka? Yeah. yeah. Apache Kafka. So Kafka, I think, came in after the NoSQL hype, but definitely in the event uh, stream hype. Yeah. So does that mean that Kafka isn't a NoSQL database because it came in too late? I think it's culturally not a NoSQL database, but it's definitely not a SQL database. That's true. I'm showing my ignorance here. No, it's uh, like there's no reason it wouldn't be a NoSQL database. But as you said, that term, <laughs> that term doesn't really have any meaning anymore. Yeah. Or any usefulness. I think it was a useful sort of thing for for a brief movement uh, in in shifting database opinions a bit. Yeah, to kickstart the movement and the hype, it was very good. But maybe it isn't as good as some kind of in some kind of taxonomy. Because I was thinking about databases, I ended up writing on Twitter. I'll see what that gives. Uh, but asking about like why people use mongodb and this is not intended to be a big slam on mongodb (laughs) (laughs) but it's so hard to not slam on mongodb (laughs) Uh, no no but but honestly i've only heard sort of negative things about mongodb or well you might as well use postgres jason b at this point yep so i'm not sure i I've heard that MongoDB has improved a lot since the the bad old days where they were definitely marketing harder than they were uh, protecting your data. Yep. So I'm I'm assuming they've made good progress and it's probably a fairly healthy database at this point. But I still don't know when when or why I would use it, and I feel like that's <laughs> that's sort of a gap in my understanding more than it's necessarily a slam on MongoDB. I yeah. feel like my opinion is probably ballpark, uh, somewhat wise. I don't think you 
typically need MongoDB for a project. I think it might be a poor choice, but I might be wrong. Yeah, I might be missing out entirely on why it's it's such a good fit for many things. Did you get any answers? I haven't I haven't checked back yet because I'm talking to you. Um, oh, I thought we were. You did this like a week ago or something. No, five minutes ago, or so. Oh, okay. No, probably thirty. I, I think I have a use case for MongoDB, but it's not my or your use case. So, let's say that you're a developer that's have mastered JavaScript. So you're a really good JavaScript developer. And are you saying I haven't mastered JavaScript? I don't know. I, I'm I'm just that, that's probably accurate. Yeah, carry on. <laughs> yeah, I'm just putting out a hypothetical scenario here. Um, I know that you wouldn't choose MongoDB, so I guess your your preferences are different. Anyway, let's say you're a top-notch JavaScript developer. You've built a front-end in React, uh, which is top-notch. Uh, you've mocked out all the stuff it should do. And then you build a backend in, I don't know what's the uh, backend framework of choice in JavaScript nowadays. It would be Next or Nuxt or something. It is? Okay, cool. Probably, or possibly Express. There, There's a few options. But But Express is like several years old. Yeah. Don't be like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think typically people would do next or next, but I can't keep it straight which are st- site generators, which are CMS things, and which are um, actual web frameworks at this point. So, yeah, I don't know. I should have done much more research before I started talking, but. Yeah, you, you write it in raw Node.js, cool? Yes, because why not? Uh, and uh, sooner or later we need to store some information somewhere yeah, or fetch some information somewhere. Uh, so what do we do then? Because we're a top-notch JavaScript programmer and we don't really have any, any idea of the world outside JavaScript. We don't know SQL. And we don't really have time to learn SQL because we need to be done... 10 seconds ago. Yeah, SQL is orthogonal and sort of irrelevant to what you're trying to do at that point. Yes. So we install MongoDB because then we can use JavaScript as a language to interact with the database. You write your maps and reduces and stuff, I think, to uh, do all these aggregations. Is the is the query language in MongoDB JavaScript? I thought it was... Yep. It could be some some interesting kind of JSON-ish thing, but syntax-wise, that's very familiar to a JavaScript developer. Yeah, regardless, you would use the MongoDB JavaScript client, and I'm exactly. I bet that one's very very approachable. Yes. What I've heard, what I heard in the sort of hype day, yep, was that the API was so easy to work with and deal with. Yeah. And and that's very good. Yeah. They should have that. <laughs> Making good APIs is incredibly hard. Yeah. I spoke to a guy from that's working on the CouchDB team. Mm-hmm. And he mentioned that um that they have they have the Mongo query API at this point. So I think they they sort of introduced that. They also have some stuff where 
So you could uh, do your reducing and uh, filtering and all of that in the once. I think you can still do it in JavaScript, and you can switch on the option to do it in Erlang. Ooh, because it's written in Erlang. Lovely. Yeah, but but at this point, and I think this this is the answer is probably mostly marketing, uh, and probably some nuances I'm not familiar with. But if I was looking for a document store of that kind, yep, between MongoDB and CouchDB, I would probably be looking at Couch. Probably. Because Couch has offline has the option of building for offline first. Ooh. There's an entire implementation, an entire complete implementation, from my my understanding, including replication, uh, in JavaScript. Wow. PouchDB. <laughs> <laughs> so that means that you could set up a JavaScript front end and it stores things in PouchDB. Yep, and whenever it has a connection, it connects to your home server and ships um, ships its state and uh, tries to sync up. And it has so the way Couch handles it is depending on how you've designed your data model, you may have conflicts. Yeah, and in that case, you need to be able to handle those conflicts in code. Okay. But you will be told by the API, like, here you have a conflict. It's this. Yep. I haven't tried it yet, but I, I'm super curious about that approach just because it would allow, not necessarily for web applications, but it's great that it works for web applications. But yeah, if I was building a native app of some sort uh, for desktop use, so that's a drawback with SQLite. I don't know how you sync up a couple of SQLite databases. Uh, you don't, I think. Yeah, essentially. So, it's or you need to write something bespoke. Yeah, or you would need to model your data in a very particular way. Yeah, such as doing an event log, uh, where essentially everything you store is just append the changes yeah. and making sure that your design is such that uh, you can think end up in an inconsistent state. If you manage to to make such a design, you have a very resilient and nice system with nice properties, but it's hard. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a whole bit of work. Yeah, yeah. So, but Couch can handle some of this and sort of be offline first. And other than that, I think it's sort of equivalent to MongoDB. Something people are doing early on with MongoDB, which I didn't hear us much about with Postgres was setting it up as a cluster. So I guess distribution might be part of why MongoDB is sort of popular. Probably. So what what does that mean? Did they like spin up five servers and put a MongoDB on each and then do the magic uh, Borg uh, high mind stuff? Or what's the, what's the story? I don't know much about MongoDB distribution, so I don't know. Uh, but I think it's generally uh, generally easier to uh, make a sane replication setup with yeah. with a, what's essentially a key value store, like a document database is a key value store in many ways. It also depends on what guarantees you have. Yeah. I think, or I know that Postgres is ACID. Is it compliant? Yeah. Or just ACID? 
Yeah, and also depending on what isolation levels you want, yeah. Postgres is more or less loose. Yeah, and and back in the day, MongoDB was YOLO compliant. <laughs> yeah, I think that was. So so, and if something is YOLO compliant, it you don't have really any problems with <laughs> operations. You only have problems with data getting lost. <laughs> it's yeah, perfect. So so trade offs, you know. Yeah, so. I'm really curious to hear from people who do, and so I hope I do get some responses to that, that do like working with MongoDB because I get the feeling that I have have sort of an old, nah, I don't like this yeah. sentiment that's, that's well ingrained and haven't, hasn't been properly challenged because I haven't seen a reason why it would be a better option. And I think it like the case you describe is probably one of the better ones where it's the API and the API surface and the way to interact with it is easier than learning SQL. Yep. I don't think it's necessarily better, but it's it's uh, like an easier curve to climb. And especially if it is easy to install MongoDB and just go. It has never been easy to install Postgres and just go. Because yeah, it's, now it it's just a Docker command essentially, but yeah, but you still need don't you still need to create a database and a user and all that stuff? Yeah, you can do most of that with the with a neat little Docker command at this point. Oh, cool! Because I think back in the day, at least MongoDB, it was just start the process and run, and then anything could connect to it. Uh, I've told you before about when we lost a couple of MongoDB databases to Bitcoin. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> the Bitcoin thieves. So they <laughs> stole all the contents, encrypted it and put it back. Uh, so that was fun. I think Docker was involved in this. Quite possible. Yeah. And maybe the lack of a firewall or something. Um, it was very fun. Uh, luckily, we didn't good store times, anything of, of uh, real value in the database. Yeah. So we could just throw it away. And then they did it again. Yeah, I think Doc. Uh, so Mongo has definitely had some issues with its defaults. And if I understand the issue with Docker and firewalls correctly, Docker and IP tables, Yeah. Docker makes it. So if you set up a bunch of IP table rules uh, and just allowed a few specific ports that you want to expose and then yep. you set up docker on the server and then you sort of um, want to access some of those docker containers via ports yep. behind your nice firewall they might yep. also inadvertently be exposed to the outside world yes i also think that docker when it starts just bypasses all the firewalls. It just adds rules and rules and rules, which opens everything to everything. Yeah, so they Docker does add a bunch of rules and they add them in a way that overrides your yeah. <laughs> your typical firewall setup. But you can modify that further. Blah, blah. Sure. But it yeah, that's a scary, scary thing. Speaking of sane defaults, that's not a sane default. No, no, it's not very good. <laughs> I don't like it. I hate it. I'd rather have like nothing works and then I have to enable things. Yeah. 
So, but and and it's also one of those. What kind of machine are you running on? Because if you're running on your dev machine, you want the everything is open YOLO mm. setup. Uh, but if you're running on your uh, production server, you want the nothing works. You'll have to open it yourself setup. Yeah, pretty much. So it's um, yeah. Uh, okay, another use case for document storage. Yeah, let's let's look at the the technology. And not the specific implementations. Uh, so if I have, okay, I can't really find any good use cases for them, but <laughs> I'll try. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so let's say I'm doing surveys. Uh, I'm asking, uh, what do you think of, uh, <laughs> what do you think of shoes? Uh, what shoes are you using? Uh, what's your favorite coffee? All that. And it's a multi-step survey and it branches and all that kind of stuff. And because if they they like uh, Nike shoes, maybe I want to ask something specific about that. Um, I know almost nothing about she- shoes. This is a very good example. Uh, and uh, storing that in a document store seems like a very sane thing to do. Uh, on the other hand, it also seems quite hard to get out, get the information out on there. So I don't know. Uh, it could probably be modeled in a very relational way in a RDBMS, but it's it takes a bit of more more of effort rather than shoving JSON blobs into a document store. Uh, what's your take on that use case and situation? I don't know. There's been a lot of shoes and feet this this time around, and I'm not sure yeah. how I feel about it. No, we could change the, <laughs> the no, domain I, if you want to. Since I worked with Elasticsearch a fair bit, that yeah. that's a document store. Yeah, uh, with a bunch of search features on top of it. Totally. And there are some conveniences to document stores. There, are, Elasticsearch particularly has gotten stricter about schema, which is a pain in the neck. Yeah. But there is some uh, some niceties about about having your schema de- essentially defined by your application instead of enforcing it in the database. Like, I definitely see the use case for a document store for quick and dirty. But at that point, I'm almost like you could write this stuff to file. Yeah, absolutely. Or use SQLite. But if you want sort of transactional guarantees or like there is a feature set, a filtering, easy filtering and all of that, you don't have to invent that if you use a document store. So I, I guess there there's a case to be made, but it's not a case I like. <laughs> yeah. It, it's like, uh, yeah. So there, there are also sort of workloads where, where I imagine this makes makes a better makes the right amount of sense like where the yeah. trade-offs line up with uh with sort of how big is the data you're storing how much sort of filtering do you need what kind of filtering do you need or how uniform or normalizable is your data or is it super wild in shape yeah then maybe a document store solves sort of handles that as much as you want it handled. Yep. There's a blog post 
by charity majors about document stores and why the idea is inherently flawed. Oh, that's... And that's the only thing I remember about the blog post. So <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> that's how my memory works nowadays. So I'll have to get the link. Yeah. So, But databases, I really like databases overall. Like it, it's a fun, it's a fun topic. Uh, yep. It's a thing you should never try to build. They say, and then they also say it's you can learn a lot from trying. Uh, <laughs> maybe you should build them, but never use them in production. Yeah, maybe. You gave me a tip about a very interesting book, which I, of course, no, I know where it is. It's right beside my bed, but I've forgotten the title of it. Maybe you know it. Designing data-intensive applications. I don't remember yes. the author right now, but yes, that's a very, very good book if you want to understand databases better and understand these trade-offs and challenges. Exactly. It also covers some sort of map reduce and like the big, uh, the big data and those use cases in yeah. some detail, which like I've never cared that much about because I haven't worked in that space. But it was super, super interesting to see sort of, okay, but why is this important? And how do you make this work? And how can you make this consistent? And okay, if we switch, start to transition from from batch jobs to more sort of a streaming event-based approach, what does that give us? What stops working? And uh, yeah, it's a super interesting book. Yep. And it really, really covers a lot of the challenges with database as well. And you, you really get an idea for how much of a pain in the neck they are. <laughs> they are indeed. <laughs>